Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 141. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on January 31st, 2024, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without intentional presentism. We believe there's dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, inspiration, oppression, genius, defeat, and glory. By 1640, English Puritans were spreading all over New England. They'd founded some 40 or 50 hamlets or towns and had spread to Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Maine, and were headed toward Long Island, Martha's Vineyard, and Nantucket. We're not going to cover most of that in all but the most cursory way. See the episode from a month or so back, an overview of the European settlement of the Northeast before 1650 for more. We need to keep this ship moving. And anyway, Eric Yanis, creator of the Other States of America History podcast, does such a good job with it, I'm not sure what I could add. I'll put a link in the show notes to his podcast for those of you who can't get enough of 17th century America. However, we are going to talk about the founding of Springfield, Massachusetts, because the man who founded it was one of those entrepreneurial and independently-minded early Americans who should be remembered in our national story. William Pynchon, a successful and intrepid fur trader and merchant who was also the author of the first book banned, and actually burned, in Boston. My mother, at least, is old enough to remember when banned in Boston was a thing and publishers sought to put it on their books to sell more copies outside of Boston. William Pynchon and his family came to Massachusetts in 1630 with a Winthrop fleet, a story familiar to long-standing and attentive listeners. Samuel Eliot Morrison, writing in 1930, described William Pynchon's background in his book Builders of the Bay Colony, quote, in the English county of Essex, about 30 miles northeast of London, lies the shire town of Chelmsford, where Thomas Hooker, founder of Connecticut, acquired his great reputation as a teacher. Riddle, the ancestral home of the Pynchon family, and the village of Springfield are nearby. Springfield's ancient Norman church is crowned with a low square tower, on which is inscribed... Praise God for all the good benefactors. During the ten years that Master Hooker lived at Chelmsford, the squire of Springfield was a quiet country gentleman named William Pynchon. The Pynchons were a Norman family who, after long eclipse, had risen in the world during the prosperous reign of Queen Bess. William's grandfather John increased the family property and prestige by marrying a wealthy heiress, daughter of Sir Richard Empson, who lost his head for constructive treason in the early part of Henry VIII's reign. They left a son who inherited the family property at Springfield, resided there after he had taken his bachelor's degree at New College, Oxford, married Francis Brett, and brought up two sons and six daughters. The eldest of this moderately large family 
William Pynchon again, the founder of Springfield, Massachusetts, was born about 1590. Back to me. Pynchon's father died when he was about 20. He inherited the Springfield property and married well besides Anna Andrews, daughter of a nearby squire. The Pynchons lived in close proximity to Thomas Hooker, whom long-standing and attentive listeners may remember as having sought and obtained permission in 1636 from the General Court of Massachusetts to take some of his followers from Boston to settle on the Connecticut River. Curiously, though, the Pynchons did not go to Hooker's church, and he was not the reason they came to New England. Years later, running rival towns on the Connecticut River, Pynchon and Hooker would detest each other with a heat of a thousand suns. As tempting as it may be to suspect that their later antipathy dated back to Essex, Morrison says there's no evidence to suggest it did. We do not know how Pynchon became involved with the Massachusetts Bay Company, but he was in on the ground floor. He was named as one of the assistants in the Royal Charter dated March 4, 1629, and the receipt for his stock subscription of 25 pounds survives. He was present at the meeting in August 1629 when the founders made the critical decision to take the original charter with them to New England. The other founders gave him the task of procuring the armaments for the expedition, a mission he accomplished. In that capacity, he bought 100 swords, 90 muskets, a couple of cannon, and an ample supply of powder and shot. Pynchon sold his estate in Springfield to raise the money to get to Massachusetts and start over again. William Pynchon was now all in. William and Anne and their five-year-old son and young daughters sailed on the Ambrose and crossed most of the way within sight of John Winthrop's flagship, the Arbella. The Pynchons first settled in the just-established Dorchester, but shortly thereafter moved to Roxbury, which I only just learned was then spelled R-O-C-K-S-B-U-R-Y, on account of the rocky and agriculturally worthless terrain. But then tragedy struck. A great sickness spread through the settlement that first summer, and a lot of new arrivals died. Famously, Lady Arbella, after whom the flagship had been named, died on August 30th, 1630. And Pynchon was another victim. Suddenly, William was a single father in a strange new world. There being a shortage of eligible women in Massachusetts, it would be, quote, some years, according to the Reverend John Elliott, minister of the First Church of Roxbury, before Pynchon remarried. The second Mrs. Pynchon was the twice-widowed Frances Samford, described by Eliot as, quote, a grave matron of the church at Dorchester. My sense is that this was considered a compliment. The past is, indeed, another country. But it worked out. William and Frances would stay together until she died many years later. Pynchon had apparently brought over a fair amount of capital since he was active in the fur trade from almost the beginning, at first along the coast of Maine, competing with the Pilgrim Fathers and the French. What precisely he did for childcare is anybody's guess. One imagines that he farmed the kids out to other households in the Roxbury congregation, at least before Francis came along. 
Soon, Pynchon was appointed treasurer of the colony, probably on account of his business savvy and demonstrated competence in procurement. He also knew a fair amount of law. He'd not studied it formally, but in those simpler days, prevalent as litigation was, all rich people needed to know the basics of English commercial and property law. Morrison describes his duties, which in themselves tell us something about life in those early years of the colony. Quote, Colony expenses included salaries for the two military captains, Underhill and Patrick, bounties for killing wolves, messenger service, lumber for work on the fort, witness fees, provisions for ships. In addition, Pynchon had to distribute an arsenal of assorted cannon, powder, match shot, priming irons, sporting muskets, carbines, swords, and wolf hooks to protect the colony from wolves, Indians, and Sir Ferdinando Gorges. Back to me. Long-standing and attentive listeners will recall that Sir Ferdinando Gorges had a separate claim to most of New England, dating back to 1606, and would send a warship to New England to deal with the interloping Puritans. It would fail to make it out of English waters, though, but not before the Puritans had built a fort in Boston Harbor to confront it. As for wolf hooks, they were, according to a Wiktionary, quote, a kind of trap used to catch wolves, consisting of an upper part resembling a crescent moon meant to be fastened between two branches, and a lower part connected by a chain in the form of a double hook meant to be covered with meat and swallowed by a wolf. I did not know that. As those of you who remember our episode from a few months back, the furry geopolitics of the eastern seaboard, demand for beaver along the coast would soon exhaust the supply. Successful fur traders would have to compete by moving closer to the still profitable hunting grounds further inland, leapfrogging each other to get to the best furs first. The Connecticut River was now the critical conduit. The Dutch and traders from Plymouth had established posts in central Connecticut. Pension, who knew his business, focused on Agawam, an Indian village on the Connecticut River just north of the Fall Line, which is the point at which ocean-going vessels could no longer navigate. Agawam had the further advantage of sitting on the old Indian trail that connected Boston to Albany, just as Interstate 90 does today. In September 1635, Pynchon and some of his team visited the area and cut an oral deal with the local Indians, a small segmentary tribe known as the Agam, numbering perhaps 150 people. Pynchon initially chose a site on the west bank of the river where they put up a single English house on a meadow at a place now known, quite helpfully, as House Meadow. Pynchon returned to Roxbury for the winter and then came back to Agawam with settlers in May 1636, the day now generally regarded as the founding of Springfield, although it would be five years before Pynchon named Agawam Plantation after his hometown in Essex. The first settlers, which included eight men in addition to Pynchon and his family, Francis, the at least heretofore grave matron and Pynchon's kids, 
came by John Winthrop's pinnace, the Blessing of the Bay, sailing up the Connecticut River to the fall line and then walking an already well-trodden path to Agawam. They quickly concluded that the west bank of the river was too close to the main fields of the Agam people. Too much proximity ran the risk of inadvertent conflict, so they abandoned the house on House Meadow. On July 15, 1636, Pynchon and 13 representatives of the Agam signed a deed reflecting Pynchon's purchase of the land from them. The consideration was robust, considering other land transactions of the time. Take that, Peterman Wee. 18 fathoms of wampum and 18 each of English coats, hose, hatchets, and knives. Unlike most other such documents of the era, the Aguam deed concedes that the Agam were the rightful owners of the land to be conveyed and the land that they retained. Further, it contained important protective provisions. Quote, the Agam people shall have and enjoy all the ground that is now planted and have liberty to take fish and deer, ground nuts, walnuts, acorns, and peas, and also, if any of our cattle spoil their corn, to pay as it is worth, and that hogs shall not go on the side of the Agawam, but in acorn time. Back to me. David Powers, author of a biography of William Pynchon called Damnable Heresy, William Pynchon, the Indians, and the first book banned and burned in Boston, argues that Pynchon's deed innovated in several of its provisions and went on to influence the drafting of other such Indian deeds in the area. Pynchon seems to have taken them seriously as bilateral documents, rather than purely as a device for warding off competing European claims, which would be the main point of Swedish and Dutch deeds with the Indians along the Delaware a few years in the future. Even if Pynchon chose the location of his settlement for economic advantage, Agawam was no mere trading post. The town and plantation records survive, which indicates the settlers were expected to set up homesteads and clear and farm land in order to retain their land. Pynchon built a grist mill on the aptly named Mill River, which flows into the Connecticut about 20 miles north of Springfield, as, of course, the perfectly ordinary crow flies. He built a palisaded warehouse just below the fall line at the site still known as Warehouse Point, about a dozen miles south of Springfield. There he stored his trading goods shipped up the Connecticut, and the fur he received in exchange for those goods until it was shipped out to Boston or other ports and on to Europe. Pynchon also served as the local magistrate and judge. This he had been authorized to do by the General Court of Massachusetts, and he knew enough law of contracts and property that he performed his duties admirably. That role led to what Morrison calls an interesting little chapter in New England politics, diplomacy, and economic thought. Agawam was at first included with the Connecticut River towns of Windsor, Hartford, and Wethersfield under the governing commission established by the General Court in March 1636. During the first year, Pynchon was at Agawam. The Connecticut River towns had several meetings, which they called courts, but Pynchon attended only one of them. Then in the spring of 1637, 
the river towns met to consider offensive war against the Pequots, a story that long-standing and attentive listeners know very well. Pynchon did not attend, but let it be known that he opposed the war. In addition to his broadly benign view of Indians and his peaceful relations with them, he would have been unhappy that the war promised to disrupt trade along the Connecticut, which it in fact did. He did not get any happier when the river towns imposed a war tax of 86 pounds on Agawam Plantation, which they had initially promised not to do. And then he got grumpier still when the river towns purported to grant him a monopoly on the beaver trade, a privilege that he neither needed nor asked for, and imposed a shilling per pelt tax in return for the monopoly. Trading monopolies were a vestige of medieval practices that were rapidly falling out of favor. Pynchon had become a free trader and opposed the beaver monopoly philosophically, writing to his friend and fellow magistrate Roger Ludlow, quote, I cannot see how it can well stand with the public good and the liberty of free men to make a monopoly of trade. I have often heard this very thing in agitation in the bay, and yet it could not be brought to pass. I hope the Lord in his mercy will keep me from coveting any unlawful gain or consenting to any man's hindrance, where God doth not hinder them. Back to me. Pension, it must be said, sat in the pole position for the beaver trade at that point, so he had a big advantage over the river towns and saw no reason to pay the shilling per pelt tax for a monopoly he did not need. So to some degree, he was talking his book, as they say on Wall Street. That does not mean, however, that he was insincere in his conviction that government monopolies were bad. There's no evidence that he ever sought one for himself. The aforementioned diplomatic crisis came in the severe winter of 1637-38. The corn crop the previous summer had been inadequate, perhaps scant, on account of the war. By late winter, the river towns were on the brink of famine. On March 8, 1638, the court ordered, with the consent of Mr. Pynchon, that he should purchase from the Indians and deliver to the three river towns 500 bushels of corn at a specified and low price. Pynchon did not need this business, so he probably took on what would turn out to be a thankless task out of a sense of duty. In the event, however, Pynchon was not able to negotiate a purchase of corn at the contract price and wrote back to Hartford that he could not make a deal. The river towns, getting very hungry now, sent Captain John Mason upriver to procure it by whatever means. Mason was almost certainly the wrong person to send on such a mission, since word had gotten around that he had commanded the famously brutal slaughter of the Pequots at Mystic the previous year. Now let's go to Morrison's account. Quote, the Indians at first refused to trade with Mason. A conference was held between him, Pynchon, Moxon the minister, and a Nanatuck Indian in Pynchon's house at Agawam. Here it appeared that Mason wished to pay the Indians in advance to go up to Waranoko and bring down corn. Pynchon advised him that it was fatal to pay Indians in advance. They always skipped off to the woods with a wampum and never delivered the goods. And Moxon chimed in with a homely simile, 
An Indian promise is no more than to have a pig by the tail. Mason finally agreed to pay no money until he saw the corn, but little or none was forthcoming for the price he offered, and the hot-tempered captain returned downriver, convinced that Pension was thinking only of his own profit and prestige, and trying to hold up Connecticut for higher prices. Within a month, the Connecticut General Court summoned Pension to Hartford and placed him on trial for unfaithful dealing in the trade of corn and for breach of his oath as a magistrate. The particular charges were that he had obstructed the Mason mission, both by forbidding the Indians to trade with a captain and by refusing to procure a canoe that they needed for transportation. In defense, he alleged that he acted as Mason's interpreter and took off the fears of an Indian reluctant to do business with the warrior, and that, when his own plantation was in dire necessity, when the beer had given out and he himself had less than half a bushel of corn on hand for his family, when the neighbors were begging him to raise the price so that Indians would sell, he refused to exceed the maximum limit allowed by his instructions. In the matter of the canoe, it appears that there was only one in Agawam which the Indians would use, and the owner refused to lend it because he needed it for planting season. Back to me. The court brought in Thomas Hooker, now pastor of the Hartford Church, to advise on the ethical question involved in the prosecution of pension. Hooker accused pension of profiteering, notwithstanding contrary testimony from witnesses and basic economic reasoning, of which more in a moment. Hooker then declared that Pynchon had broken his oath as a magistrate, a very serious charge, insofar as oaths in those days were promises to God, and the breaking of those promises could lead to exclusion by one's community, not to mention an ugly afterlife. Pynchon was deeply aggrieved and stunned into silence. He would not remain silent forever, though, and soon penned a rebuttal, which he termed an apology, addressed to the general court. Regarding the economic defense, Hooker and the Connecticut court offered reasoning that would perhaps make sense to some people even today, such as politicians denouncing profiteering after a disaster of some sort or a spike in inflation, but not to anybody versed in business or economics. Hooker believed in the old medieval notion of a just price and thought that raising prices to meet strong demand was immoral. In Morrison's words, quote, Corn was scarce and Connecticut in danger of starving. Ergo, argued Hooker in the general court, the Indians should charge them even less for corn than in normal years. If Pynchon did not see eye to eye with them, he must be a usurer, a profiteer, an evil person. Pension, on the contrary, represented the instinctive theory of the 17th century businessman, impatient of ecclesiastical and political trammels. Even the Indians had a more exact appreciation of economic laws than did Thomas Hooker in the general court. For they observed that having obtained eight sixes of wampum for a peck of corn the year before, when corn was plenty, they would certainly not sell it for six sixes when corn was in brisk demand. 
back to me. The free trader's argument prevailed in fact, of course it did, even if it was not probative in court or persuasive to the Reverend Hooker. Two months later, the Rivertown sent Mason north again, this time with a squad of soldiers. Even under such circumstances, the Indians extracted more than double the price that the court had forbidden Pynchon to exceed. The Connecticut court did not stop with having convicted Pynchon. It wrote to Pynchon's church in Roxbury, where he was still a member, demanding that he be censured or even excommunicated for having broken his oath. Eventually, the church exonerated him, but only after three years of inquiry that was excruciating for Pynchon, who believed that Hooker and the Connecticut court had dishonored him in a most unjust way. Pynchon, in the end, would get his revenge. Massachusetts Bay, the most powerful colony in the region, had taken an interest in extending its jurisdiction to include Springfield. As part of the complex negotiations over the establishment of the United Colonies, which would bring Massachusetts Bay, Plymouth, New Haven, and Connecticut into a confederacy for various purposes, Pynchon would move heaven and earth to support Massachusetts in its claim. Pynchon would be elected again to his former position in the Court of Assistance of Massachusetts, and in 1649, Springfield became part of Massachusetts and was represented in its general court. It's therefore fair to say that the boundary between Connecticut and Massachusetts to this very day is the downstream result of Thomas Hooker being such a huge nickname for Richard in his condemnation of William Pynchon. There was one final flipping of the proverbial bird between Springfield and the river towns. Connecticut attempted to tax exports coming downriver from Springfield. Massachusetts threatened retaliatory tariffs on imports from Connecticut. This made it to the commissioners of the United Colonies, who in 1650 washed their hands of the matter and declared their, quote, desire to be spared in all further agitations concerning Springfield. Morrison devotes a fair amount to Pynchon's career as Springfield's magistrate, presiding primarily over small claims between residents in the occasional criminal case. He seems to have been a careful and serious judge, even when the cases themselves were, to our sensibilities, inherently humorous. One was an involved domestic dispute between Hugh and Mary Parsons that included competing accusations of witchcraft, which was only just becoming a thing in New England. There's almost certainly witch hunting in the future of this podcast, so I'll defer the Parsons case at least until I get around to the topic. Here's Morrison's take on a couple of other matters. Quote, Most of the cases before the court were petty, leaving timber on the road, not paying for a hog, slander such as false imputations of wrong-dealing and taking of those pompions, pumpkins, the regular grist that passed through all the early New England courts. In the 13 years covered by the record, there is hardly a case which would come before a court of justice today. So much has been written of late, remember Morrison was writing in 1930, about the sexual irregularities of the Puritans, 
that it is perhaps worth recording that only two cases in Pynchon's magistracy were of that nature. In the one, a case of fornication attempted but not achieved, both parties were whipped. In the other, of masturbation in public, Pynchon tried the accused in private, swore the accusing witnesses to secrecy, and administered his own sentence himself by whipping the man's back with a rod. Back to me. William Pynchon, it turned out, was much more than a frontier impresario, merchant, and judge. He applied his hard-earned common sense to theological matters and started writing them down. Now back to Morrison, quote, Orthodox Calvinists agreed with the medieval church in believing that Christ, literally, in the words the Apostles' Creed, descended into hell, there to suffer the torments of the damned as a part of his price for our salvation. Himself a father, Pynchon could not conceive of God the Father exacting for our sins such a terrible price of his only begotten Son— as to doom him not only to die in agony on the cross, but to suffer the torments of hellfire. Pondering the question during long winter evenings in Springfield and on his lonely horseback journeys over the Bay Path, discussing and searching the Bible with Master Moxon, you can see where this is going, he reached the conclusion that there was not authority in Scripture for the Orthodox view— Christ never actually bore Adam's sin or suffered God's curse for Adam's fall. His descent into hell, if indeed he ever visited the place, was a mere sightseeing expedition like those of Aeneas and Dante. Christ made a full and a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the world by perfect obedience to his Father's will and by his death and passion. In the course of years, after how many painful rewritings and redraftings we do not know, Pynchon completed a book to prove his point, written in the form of a dialogue between a tradesman and a divine. It was sent over to London to be printed, and printed there it was by one James Moxon, probably a kinsman of the minister at Springfield, in 1650. The meritorious price of our redemption, justification, etc., was the title of this book of 170 pages by William Pynchon, gentleman in New England. Back to me. The extended title of the meritorious price lays out its fundamental argument, which is arcane even by the standards of this podcast. Essentially, Pynchon argued that Christ was not killed by men because men lacked the power to kill him, and that having died by essentially his own consent... He did not suffer hellfire and all the related ins and outs and what have yous. Rather, Christ redeemed humanity by his obedience, which required him to die at the hands of men. That obedience set the standard for Christian behavior ever since. Pynchon was reading scripture as a normal person would. Where exactly does the Bible say all that stuff that Christians, whether of Rome or Geneva, had been claiming all these centuries? His argument was not unappealing. At the time that Pynchon's book came out in London, England was flooded with new publications exploring theological minutiae. Every little quirk in Calvinist thinking was open to some new interpretation. Pynchon's book was a drop in that flood, 
Nobody in England would have cared, in part because others had argued at least variations on his points, and also because there were so many lonely pamphleteers, as Justice Byron Wright would put it approximately 320 years later, that the authorities couldn't police theological opinions even if they'd wanted to. When a copy arrived in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in October 1650, however, the reaction was entirely different. As David Powers put it, it practically begged to be banned. There were fundamentally two problems with it. The first was that its thesis ran right up against Calvinist doctrine, which had in this respect followed the Roman church. Christ suffered for our sins, and that is what redeemed believers, not that he was obedient. Second, Pynchon had offended the clergy by pretending to their expertise. He was a smart businessman and judge, given a thinking through matters of right and wrong in a sophisticated way. But he was untrained in theology. He had used the wrong buzzwords, and that would not stand. As it happened, the court of the Massachusetts Bay was in session, without obviously having read beyond the title page, which summarized the arguments of the book in roughly 125 words, they condemned it as false, erroneous, and heretical. They resolved that a protest be drawn up, that one of the reverend elders be hired to write a rebuttal. The court would end up paying John Norton 20 pounds to draft it, that pension be required to attend the next court to answer for his heresy, and that, quote, the said new book now be brought over to be burnt by the executioner and that in the marketplace in Boston on the morrow, immediately after the lecture. The deed was done. The first book to be burned in Boston was set on fire by the town's executioner. And that makes sense if you're trying to send a message that nonconformity is unacceptable a foundational point in Winthrop's Massachusetts that all long-standing and attentive listeners well understand. Word got around, and Hutchinson had, of course, died in New Netherland during Keefe's War, but Roger Williams was still alive and still robustly beating the drum for liberty of conscience. In late October, aware of the controversy, he sent a wry letter to John Winthrop, Jr. The elder died in the spring of 1649, on this very point, quote, Hugh Calkin tells me of a book lately come over in Mr. Pynchon's name, wherein is some derogation to the blood of Christ. The book was therefore burned in the marketplace at Boston and Mr. Pynchon to be cited in the court. If it come to your hand, I may hope to see it. However, the most high and only wise will by this case discover what liberty conscience hath in this land. Roger Williams cracked Roger Williams up. As word got around, others rallied to Pynchon's defense. Sir Henry Vane, who'd been governor of Massachusetts during the Anne Hutchinson controversy and one of her supporters, was now an immensely powerful noble in Oliver Cromwell's circle. He thought it important to write a letter in support of Pynchon. All to no avail. In May 1651, Pynchon appeared at the general court as ordered, where John Norton set forth the grounds for Pynchon's errors in painstaking detail. 
being far more practical than either Roger Williams or Ann Hutchinson. He was, after all, a businessman and probably approached his trial as a negotiation rather than a divine judgment. Pynchon conceded some of the criticisms leveled against the book. This mollified the court, but didn't fool them into closing the matter and reinstating them in government offices and such. Pynchon was ordered to return to the court in the fall for further discussion of his heresy. This he would not do. He could not bear the questioning of his honor or his piety. He assigned his business interests to his son, and he and his wife quietly slipped home to England. There he would spend his retirement, as it were, writing involved theological tracts, including a response to John Norton. There's no evidence that Norton ever read it. Neither were Pynchon's later books important to the history of the Americans. There's much more that might be said about William Pynchon the man. If you are from Springfield or like to read about complicated people or want the details of the theological stakes in the controversy spun up by Pynchon, I recommend David Power's book, Damnable Heresy, for which there is a link in the show notes on the website. Mr. Powers was generous to me in the writing of this, cleaning up some questions I had about discrepancies between various accounts. If you're listening, thank you. Let's close with a point made by Samuel Eliot Morrison in 1930, which struck me as equally if not especially relevant today. Quote, But we shall better understand the frame of mind of the general court if we compare it, not with a legislature, but with a college board of trustees. They conceive themselves trustees of Orthodox Christianity, just as many American college boards consider themselves trustees of Orthodox Americanism, capitalism, or whatnot, and they condemn Pynchon and his book in just the same spirit that many alumni have demanded and some colleges have conceded the dismissal of professors who write books which are considered unpatriotic or socialistic. Back to me. In other words, there's not very much that's new under the sun. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a five-star rating on Apple and following me on X and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time. <laughs>